You're listening to Descent Magazine's Belaboured Podcast, hosted by Sarah Jaffe and Michelle Chen. Each Friday, we bring you the latest news and analysis from the world of labour. First, the news. Hey, Sarah. Hi, Michelle. And welcome to Belaboured episode number 49. And this week in labour news, in a move surprising no one, Senate Republicans blocked another vote on another thing. Um, this time for Paycheck Fairness. Yes, once again, the Paycheck Fairness Act. It's time for Equal Pay Day, which means equal pay uh, gets screwed again in Congress. So uh, the Senate voted 53 to 44 to move forward on the bill. And if that sounds like a majority, it's not in the Senate. Um, they needed 60 <laughs> votes to overcome a Republican filibuster. And so once again, um, we're back to the drawing board. But this year, Obama wielded his mighty executive pen and he signed into law two executive orders that basically um, direct federal contractors to do what the Paycheck Fairness Act would have instituted on a national level, which is basically end pay secrecy in federal contractors. So this covers um, a considerable number of workers. Um, so, you know, some millions of workers will be affected by this. Um, and they will, the idea is to prevent employers from dividing and conquering workers, essentially by forcing them to keep their pay secret. And when you are not allowed to discuss your pay openly with co-workers or to disclose that publicly, obviously it is a hindrance to um, your right to um, hold your employer accountable for pay discrimination. It's, uh, it also militates against your right to even know that paycheck discrimination is going on. Um, so with this executive order, um, Obama helped push back against that. Of course, um, this is an extension of one of the first initiatives that he took when he entered office, which was the Lilly Ledbetter Fair Pay Act, which is based on the case, the now famous case of uh, a woman who for years was systematically denied equal compensation to her male co-workers, didn't find out about this until after, you know, until it was too late. And now there has been legislation to remedy this by extending the statute of limitations. But as always, um, transparency is the bottleneck. Um, workers are not empowered to know when they're being discriminated against because they have uh, policies in many workplaces that basically prevent workers from disclosing how much they pay. So again, going back to the survey data on this, uh, according to one study, almost half of all workers in the United States are either banned from talking about their salaries by contract or strongly discouraged from doing so by their employers. That was the result of a 2011 survey from the Institute for Women's Policy Research. So obviously this is a large problem, and it should also be noted that the characteristics of workers who are not as subject to these kinds of restrictions is that they tend to work in the public sector as opposed to the private sector. And in many cases, union jobs um, can help stave off some of this tendency of employers to enforce this secrecy upon workers. So the bottom line is more power for workers means more knowledge, means more ability to hold your employer accountable. And as long as our federal laws and practices is, uh, do not allow for that, um, that is going to be a huge blight on this effort to enforce this thing that we've had on the books for a long time, which is, um, you know, an equal pay law. What do you mean, equal pay? Yeah. <laughs> it's sort of worth noting, I think Corey Robin made the joke on Twitter that Republicans keep claiming that they're in favor of free speech in the workplace, but only for the boss. Right. Oh, and of course, corporations have unlimited free speech rights, of course. Oh, yes. So, yeah. Well, Because well. they're people, God as opposed damn. to workers who aren't. Right. So anyway, speaking of workers and gender discrimination on the job, or 
other forms of interesting discrimination on the job. Um, There was some good news this week for the workers at Walmart. Um, Actually, a couple of victories as their campaign for better treatment at the world's largest retailer continues. One of those wins is, in fact, for pregnant workers. After worker shareholders submitted a proposal at this year's shareholders meeting, for more on that shareholders meeting, you can go back and listen to episode 10 of Belabored, the company adjusted its policy to comply with federal law. Yes, you heard that right. Before this, their policy was not to comply with federal law. Um, Federal law requires that workers with a temporary disability related to a pregnancy should be given reasonable accommodation at work. Um, So Walmart is now going to allow workers who have a pregnancy-related disability to apply for said reasonable accommodation. Um, The workers who are members of our Walmart who put forward this proposal um, are claiming this rightly as a victory and are going to continue to pressure the company for fair treatment for pregnant workers with a campaign called Respect the Bump. Also at Walmart this week, um, the company has begun to allow workers to pick up extra hours through a new system that lets them use the company's internal scheduling system to find extra shifts. While this, if this too, of course, is a far cry from uh, regular steady and fair scheduling, it's certainly an improvement for workers for whom a couple of extra hours can mean the difference between paying and failing to pay rent, and definitely a victory that came from worker organizing, but also an example that, as many have pointed out and as we we've discussed on this podcast, um, computerized scheduling can be used to improve workers' lives rather than to destabilize them. And in other news from The Hill, GOP House members voted to restore a definition of the work week to 40 hours from the 30 hours that had been mandated in Obamacare. What that essentially means is that um, while the Affordable Care Act um, allowed employers to be held responsible for providing some kind of health care coverage to workers who worked as little as 30 hours a week, um, Republicans are ringing the alarm bells on how this will cost jobs and lead people to cut hours for workers. And so they're basically saying, let's give employers a reprieve by allowing them to count only people who work a full 40-hour work week to be eligible for um, this kind of health care subsidy. Um, so basically, you know, that sounds like a fairly minor tweak in the language of um, the regulation, but what it actually does is um, allow lawmakers to redefine the work week in such a way that makes it easier for bosses to cut people out of health insurance coverage. So that's a little interesting because it, again, like many conservative initiatives, pits the need for jobs and working hours against the need for decent benefits, as if you can't have both at once. This should be troubling to anyone who thinks of the health care that people are able to scrounge together um, as not just a privilege, but as an entitlement. And as long as we... As a right. Yes. Um, and insofar that we are working within a flawed system in which people do depend on their employers for health care, mm-hmm. we should not be relegated to a system in which we have to choose between having a job or having enough hours to sustain ourselves and going with the health care that we deserve. Basically, under this proposal, which you know President Obama said he would veto, what the Republicans are now asking for is yet another carve-out of the Affordable Care Act, which basically makes it easier. On the justification, this will let people preserve their jobs will be to let them go without health care. So this is just a wrong-headed policy, but it also speaks to some deeper inequities in our whole health care system. The fact that it's inherently inequitable when you have people depending completely on their employer 
for health insurance, and meanwhile you have the same conservatives in Congress uh, preventing any kind of expansion of Medicaid, which is what is designed to catch people if they do fall within the hole of the healthcare system where they don't have employer-based coverage and they don't have any sort of means to pay for their own health care. So basically you're putting people into a black hole and then saying, oh, you want to hold on to that job? Sorry, no health care for you. Weird. You know, I get an idea that would make sure employers don't ever have to pay for their employees' health care. It's called single payer. Weird. Oh, wait, no, we, we had that debate. All right, off the table. No, not, not no, going to happen. No, no. Yeah. Well, in any case, while we're talking about hours worked and access to health insurance and other fundamental tenets of having a job, there are a lot of people who are shut out of even getting a job in the first place. So to this week in New York City Council, they have introduced a bill, a version of which has already been introduced on the national level. But as you know, we've noted things passing through Congress that would help workers stand about a snowball's chance in hell. So here in New York City, they've introduced the Stop Credit Discrimination in Employment Act, a bill that would end the practice of employers running a credit check on people applying for jobs. Because what really matters for your ability to do a job, whether that job be working in a retail store or being a server in a restaurant or working in, dare I say, a Wall Street bank, is whether or not you've ever missed a payment on your student loans or whether you've ever missed a payment on your credit card. This kind of practice is just one of the many, many ways that employers have been taking sort of horrific advantage of the terrible, lousy economy we're still in, in case you hadn't noticed, to sort of create more and more hoops that workers have to jump through in order to get a job at all. So, you know, whether or not you have good credit has nothing to do with your ability to do the job, but it's just one more way to lock people who are already struggling out of access to work. This is related to things like discrimination against the long-term unemployed, etc. Um, it's ways to deny the people who need jobs the most access to jobs. So, and it's also this kind of credit checks particularly is giving more power of the, you know, the debt factories down on Wall Street over working people's lives. So this would be a great thing. Um, hopefully it's more likely to pass in New York City where our city council is rather progressive, where our mayor likes to, you know, actually talk about workers' rights. So here's hoping that at least in New York City, the banks that I can see from our Wall Street recording studio will have a little bit less power over working people's ability to get a job. You're listening to Belabored, a Descent Magazine podcast. Links to articles mentioned in this episode may be found at descentmagazine.org. To continue our conversation about New York City, getting jobs, having jobs, and what happens when you're in a job in this city, we are joined by Ruth Milkman. Ruth is a sociologist of labor and a professor at the CUNY Graduate Center and at the Joseph Murphy Institute for Worker Education and Labor Studies. And she is the co-editor with Ed Ott of a new book called New Labor in New York, Precarious Workers in the Future of the Labor Movement. The book is a collection of deep studies of worker centers and new labor formations in New York City. It examines the work of Domestic Workers United, a union organizing campaign at Target, organizing at um, independent grocery stores in Brooklyn, taxi driver organizing, and much more. Ruth sat down with me to discuss the book and the research and the class that it came out of. So first I want to hear more about the course that, that you and Ed taught that resulted in this book and how this was different than maybe other courses that they 
that students take studying labor? Sure. Well, so I guess I should say that I had done a similar project in California without right. a course, right? Which led to a book called Working for Justice that's about mm -hmm. the same topic except about LA. Yeah. And um, when I came to New York in two thousand, late the very end of two thousand nine, yeah, I thought, well, it would be very cool to do a project like that here. Yeah. This was partly selfish on my part because I really wanted to you know, become familiar with the scene here and learn what was going on. And Ed, of course, has been in the labor movement right. here for 40 years, so knows everything. So it took me a little while, but I eventually persuaded him to do it with me. Yeah. And um, so the f in it was 2011, in the spring, that we taught the first course, or ended yeah. up being two courses. And yeah. the condition for... So we, we handpicked a few students from Murphy right. to um, be part of it. And then we also just kind of put the word out here at the Graduate Center that we mm. were going to be doing this. And the condition for being part of the course was that you had to commit to doing a case study of either a low-wage worker campaign, organizing campaign, right. or a worker center, or something along those lines. I mean, we did end up including like things like the freelancers, which isn't right. low-wage workers so much, but, yeah. um, but that was deliberate. And with a view toward, um, you know, an extended period of time where you would work on this and eventually hopefully produce a book that we couldn't absolutely promise that that would happen, you yeah. know, but that right. was always the goal. Yeah. Um, so we got this incredible group of people who, I mean, I, I think you know about that already from some, some of the names, people yeah. like Harmony Goldberg and right. Jane and people, there were some of them who already were very um, steeped in these movements and had their own contacts and the ones who didn't have that and were just interested, Ed helped, you know, connect them to the yeah. different groups. So we started it, so it was really designed to do this from the beginning. Yeah. And the first part, the first thing we did in the course was they read um, the introduction to the Working for Justice book and picked a chapter and wrote a critique. And so yeah. the idea was to, okay, here's one version of this kind of thing. How right. can we make it better? Yeah. And then we read together, and we hadn't done any of this in L.A., by the way. Mm -hmm. was no, it was just much more ad hoc. Yeah. Um, we read a bunch of texts together, things like Janice Fine's book on mm -hmm. worker centers. Actually, yeah. I'm not sure we read the book, but we read some of her articles. We read Jennifer Gordon's book on... Yeah. On the workplace project, some methodological stuff about how you do ethnographic research, et cetera, et cetera. And then, meanwhile, they were all doing field work. And so, by the end of that first semester, everybody had written a very preliminary kind of draft of their case. Yeah. They then, um, we gave them detailed feedback, and in the summer, they revised those papers mm -hmm. and continued the field work. Then, we had a second course in the fall where um, each week was devoted to one of the projects. It worked out perfectly because I think there are 14 in the end yeah. and there are about that many weeks in the semester. And they, so we tr so everybody read the drafts mm -hmm. for each other and did detailed comments. And then they also, um, each person picked like a text that had influenced them a lot yeah. as another reading for the, that week. Excellent. And so that worked out really well. Then um, they revised them again. I mean, they handed in a new version. We read them again. Yeah. Then we had a conference at Murphy, which you might have been at. It yeah. was in the spring of 2012, um, which a couple hundred people showed up for. And it was not a conventional conference in that yeah. the, the papers were posted on the web for anybody who registered could read them in advance, but we didn't have them presented directly. Instead, we had um, a bunch of commentators, which were Dorian Warren, yeah. Jennifer Gordon, Dorothy Zukabel, and um, Dan Clausen, yeah. comment on the papers, and then the authors responded, and yeah. that worked very well. Then they revised them again. Then <laughs> last year, while I was up at my in my fellowship year off, I yeah. um, did a sort of very heavy duty editing and wrote the introduction, and that was it. And so, and Ed's was his um, 
you know, brilliant guy, but not really that um, skilled as a writer. Yeah. So that his chapter was actually a began as a transcript of the talk he gave at the conference, yeah. which is our closing mm-hmm. plenary. And then um, you know we sort of worked on it together, so we turned it more into a piece that could be read as opposed yeah. to talk. So that's how it was, and um, you know I think it was really successful that way. And it was, I have to say, this is just a plug for the City University of New York. Yeah, it was the perfect place to do this because so many of the students who come here are already politically progressive and politically active and oriented toward this kind of engagement with social movements which you know not every university is like that and you know Murphy added even uh, more of that so it was really like the perfect environment in which to do this yeah yeah so that was the process yeah so most of the groups that are covered like you said we're we're working with low-wage workers or the freelancers it's the um you talk about the precariat in Uh your introduction um the workers who don't have steady reliable uh, employment and in some cases are specifically excluded from labor law why is it so important both to organize these workers and then to study how this organizing is happening well the background is really just the crisis of the conventional or traditional labor movement um which had a model that worked pretty well in the mid-20th century, but today has been really radically undermined by both changes in the law and changes in the business models that employers use, and and even more so by the two together. So so that more and more workers, um, that traditional system of labor relations is completely inaccessible to them. So for example, the basic labor law of the United States, the National Labor Relations Act, requires um, to be eligible for coverage under that act, you must be an employee. If you're right. a contract worker of some kind, or a freelancer, or a temp, you're not even eligible yeah. to organize in that way. So, partly as a result of that, combined with all the attacks on organized labor that have come down in recent decades, that have led to you know single-digit membership in the right. private sector, um, lots of different groups have been experimenting with ways to try to organize despite all of that and yeah. so that's really where most of these groups came from. Some of the, some of the cases in the book actually are um, campaigns that were run by conventional unions but right. the majority of them are not. Yeah. Or they're... And then, and then the yeah. one more piece to that is um, involves immigrant workers who, especially yeah. undocumented immigrants, right. who are actually covered by the same laws as everybody else with one important exception that, um, yeah. but they don't always know that they are and there's... Um, that presents a whole set of special right. problems as well, and we know from lots of evidence that um, immigrants are actually um, very interested in taking advantage of organizing opportunities in the rare moments where those come along, and so mm-hmm. that's another piece of it um, yeah. that we were interested in in this project. Yeah, so, of course, the book is looking at, at worker centers that have arisen in, in New York specifically, um, and you talk about this a little bit in your introduction, but um, why has New York been such fertile ground for this kind of um, worker center organizing, um, and especially, again, among immigrant workers? Well, it's partly just that New York has a huge concentration of farm-born workers, which, you know, so Los Angeles, I think, these same things have flourished even more so, actually, Mm -hmm. and kind of, although some of the very first worker centers actually emerged here in New York, Mm -hmm. and then the movement kind of took off more on the West Coast, but then has also emerged here. So the very first ones were... um, we don't have a chapter on it in the book, but we mentioned it a little bit in the introduction. Chinese staff and workers, I believe that was the first one in the whole United States. Yeah. Um, and they um, overwhelmingly focused on immigrant workers in the garment and restaurant industries who were experiencing 
violations of basic employment law, like not getting paid the minimum wage, not getting paid at all in some cases. Right. And um, they really were the pioneers and followed later by um, the Workplace Project on an Island, which also took up these same issues more with Latino immigrants. Um, and it's really, I think, the reason New York is an attractive venue for this is two things. One is the enormous concentration of lawyers. <laughs> so many, I'm serious. Yeah. We document this in the yeah. section. I didn't even know that before we did the project, but there's a, a lot yeah. more lawyers per capita here than elsewhere, and a lot of them mm -hmm. care about these kind of issues. Um, and the huge concentration of, of immigrants from actually yeah. all over the world um, who are really um, here mostly to advance themselves economically, and so when they run up against these kinds of issues, they are very ripe for recruitment into these groups. And there's also a lot of foundations in New York which yeah. provide the funding for these operations. So I think it's a mix of all those things. Yeah. Um, and interestingly, a, a few of them have, um, the, the ones that were launched here, many of them now have turned into national groupings, right. as you know. So. Yeah. Yeah. One of the things that is fascinating, right, is that like some of these groups that started off as, as local New York groups benefited from very specific things about New York, like organizing domestic workers is easier when all of the domestic workers are at the same city park. Yes. Um, Even in Los Angeles they do it that way, but yeah. whatever. Yeah. yeah, so like, what are some of the challenges for expanding nationally from a, a, such a specifically, you know, strange place like New York? Yeah, or you could say the same thing about Los Angeles, which yeah. is the others. I think they're about equal in terms of concentration per right. capita of worker yeah. centers or whatever. Well, it's interesting. If you look at the map of where um, these kinds of organizations have sprouted up, they are actually all over the country already. Mm -hmm. Obviously, fewer in smaller places. Right. Um, they It pretty much maps onto the immigrant population, yeah. though. So, for example, Omaha, Nebraska has a few. Yeah. And there's a big meatpacking industry there, that the workforce of which is 100% foreign-born or 99% mm -hmm. or something. Yeah. So... Um, and it, so it takes, you know, mm -hmm. uh, a population that's both vulnerable and um, interested in these issues and some kind of uh, social movement entrepreneur who's willing to put in the investment of doing the spade work. But I don't think it's this is something unique to New York. It's yeah. just um, it's easier here in a lot of ways. Yeah. And there's a bigger demand just because there's such a huge concentration of workers. And it probably helps, too, that it's a politically liberal city where yeah. there's more sympathy maybe than in some places mm -hmm. for both immigrants and for low-wage workers generally. Yeah. And, like, I'm thinking of, like, the taxi workers, right, trying to expand. is like New York is sort of uniquely dependent on the taxi industry, well, that's right? that's a special case, yeah. Um, and, like, again, domestic workers. I actually... Um, I was on a panel not that long ago, and there was a girl in the room who worked as a nanny who was, like, asking essentially my advice on organizing, and she, like, works in the suburbs, and I'm just like... Yeah, <laughs> you know, wow. I don't, I don't know what to say. And that case, it's also even in New York, it's really challenging to yeah. do outreach to people because workers are by definition isolated in right. private homes, and so yeah, they meet in the parks if they're nannies, but not if they're house cleaners or right. whatever. And um, while Domestic Workers United has done incredible work in terms of getting this issue into the public square and right. getting people to see the abuses that go on and so on. Their organizing lags way behind that. I mean, it's, yeah. it's hard even for them, and to do it in a more in a less dense, po densely populated environment would be even harder. Um, I mean, I think I have to say this is many of these groups have been more successful on their sort of air wars than on their ground wars. Mm -hmm. It's not just the domestic workers. So it you know, and all of them have have become highly skilled at um, figuring out how to shine a bright light on abuses and to get public attention, sometimes legal attention, sometimes media attention yeah. to the issues. 
um, that turns out to be a lighter lift than actually organizing workers in a sustained mm-hmm. way, which is really hard. And I, I'm one of the things that we talk about in the pages of the book is that for that reason, I think these um, the leaders of the worker centers, many of them were pretty skeptical about traditional unionism when they started out, yeah. have become increasingly um, interested in trying to figure out how to adapt the, the traditions of unionism to what they're doing because yeah. of the benefits of having dues payers and lasting organization as opposed to these foundation-funded tiny little organizations mm-hmm. that are just struggling to stay above water. So, and similarly, the unions um, watching their membership ebb further and further and faced with the possibility of becoming you know, extinct entirely are very much um, more appreciative than they were at the outset of these kinds of organizations with their kind of creative ways of engaging the public and the media and so on than they were. At first, I think there was tremendous skepticism. I don't think I know. (laughs) Within um, the sort of halls of labor about these new organizations that they thought were, you know, they didn't have any money. They're run by these very young, inexperienced people. How are they going to ever do anything? This kind of thing. And they've really won the respect of... The, um, of organized labor now, so that's good because the, there's a lot of potential for collaboration between the two that in the beginning didn't seem like it could happen, but now it's beginning to. Yeah, yeah. Um, so because we talked about some of the reading that that the course did together, but you see some of the same issues coming up again and again in the chapters in the book. Um, issues about like what relying on foundation funding, how mm-hmm. it helps, how it limits organizing, um, the question of advocacy and whether sort of, you know, whether these groups are doing advocacy or whether they're actually organizing workers. Um, do you feel like the book helps resolve any of those questions? Do you come down on one side or the other Um, on any of those? I feel like what the book shows is the potential for bringing this kind of organizing onto Mm -hmm. scale. These are all cases, well, maybe not all, but the vast majority of them are cases where it's relatively small numbers of people are involved. Mm-hmm. I guess the exceptions to that are Make the Road and the Taxi, which are both quite a bit bigger than the mm-hmm. others. But even there, they're very fragile organizations. You just don't know what the future is. And um, what I feel like they show is that it is possible to do this kind of organizing in a um, successful way where you win victories and you get you yeah. achieve many of the goals. But really they are drops in the bucket in terms of the need that's out there. They're very, very small scale relative yeah. to the not the you know the millions of precarious workers in this country and even here in New York, yeah. they just are barely making a dent in the situation. So, I guess it's true that the book raises more questions than it answers. <laughs> but um, what I think it shows is that this can be done, and if there were a way of um, garnering a f- enough resources to to do the same thing on a much larger scale, mm-hmm. I think it does have a transformative potential. But that has not been realized really. Yeah. Except you know, in very for very small numbers of people, so I don't think advocacy should be seen as a negative thing. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's obviously better. Well, it seems to me it's better and more enduring if you can actually organize people in a sort of lasting way with mm-hmm. an organization that has some legs and that can persist for long periods of yeah. time. That's a good thing. But it's also valuable to uh, be a voice for the voiceless and I feel like, you know, that's what a lot of the worker centers end up doing because they don't have the resources to do large-scale organizing and that's a contribution too. It's, you know, we want them to be able to do both and they want to do both, but it's not always possible. So that is the price of, you know, very small organizations and maybe I can get this in here too. I don't think it's an accident that so many of them are led by women. 
because they, unlike the labor movement, which has a lot of resources despite its declining right. membership, these groups live on, most of them are operate on a shoestring budget, and so guess what? The leaders are women, because that's who's willing to work for those minimal salaries. Um, very strong contrast to the labor movement. So even in cases like the taxi case where right. it, the workers are overwhelmingly male, the leader is a woman. It's yeah. pretty interesting. So yeah, there was, there was really interesting stuff about that, actually, in that chapter about how um, Bhairavi Desai really resists the idea of being like the taxi worker's confessor. I thought that yeah. was fascinating. She's like the goddess right? more than the confessor. But <laughs> <love>. <laughs> yeah. she, is, she is a very Im- impressive um, person. Yeah. It's funny that LA Taxi Workers Group is also led by a woman. Mm-hmm. And, um, I, I don't think it's an accident. You're you know, taking I, over. Yeah. No, I, I think Doesn't that pay anything, right? So, yeah, there you go. Well, you know. Um, yeah, that actually connects up to, to my next question, which is um, that so many of these groups are organizing not I mean, not really at all organizing in the workplace, but are really organizing in the community, whether these are organizations like Make the Road or New York Communities for Change that are community-based organizations that are working sometimes with unions and sometimes Mm -hmm. on their own, um, or even like United New York, which is a project of of SEIU, but Mm -hmm. is looking at organizing outside of the workplace. So that, I think, is a reflection of what we talked about before in terms of the crisis of traditional unionism, in the sense that you know, that model is broken and right. isn't really working. And so I think both Fight for a Fair Economy and, well, some of the other groups you mentioned have decided that, you know, to, they want to just experiment and try yeah. new things. And in a way, they're taking a page from what the worker centers have been doing for right. a while. Yeah. But some of the larger unions are experimenting as well with that, which I think is a good thing because it is true that that system is broken. And, what you know... That definition of insanity thing from Einstein about how doing the same thing and expecting a different result right. doesn't really make sense. I mean, they they're beginning to realize that and um, acting accordingly. Yeah. So that's all good. Um, yeah. I mean, I I think one of the questions this actually came up in the the ongoing debates over what what went wrong in Chattanooga. This like you need to actually organize in the community as well as in the workplace. Um, you know, I want. I feel it feels like this thing that in some of these cases, right, that unions are realizing that this is important and thus saying, like, okay, we're going to connect with New York Communities for Change. We're going to connect with Make the Road because they have a base in this community mm-hmm. already to then make it then easier to organize in the workplace. Mm-hmm. Well, that's the concept. Um, and we'll see if it really happens. I mean, I think <laughs> Chattanooga is different, but with an immigrant population. Yeah. There are often um, connections, very direct ones, between the community and the workplace because of the social networks that immigrants rely on to get both housing and jobs. Mm -hmm. And so in a way, if you organize in the community, you are organizing workers who work in the same place very frequently. Mm -hmm. Um, That wouldn't be true so much in the case of VW and Chattanooga, I don't think. But but in places like New York and L.A., it works in that there really are, um, there's a lot of overlap in the yeah. social networks involved. And so by organizing people where they live, you very quickly can carry that into the workplace. But, yeah. Yeah, yeah that's really interesting. I just, you know, I also just always think that, like, this, this the thinking about the home is too gendered for some people to wrap their head around. That's right? true. It yeah. seems like a... Well, and of course, for the domestic workers that we talked about before, right. the home is the workplace, although it's not their home. Yeah. But sometimes it is. I mean, so there are the... We don't have this in the book, but the child care workers who mm-hmm. work in other yeah. homes. That, yeah. Yeah. Right. And then... Yeah. Yeah, they've... That actually 
had pretty impressive organizing they too. They have, but that's yeah. completely different. Right, and that's yeah. much more top down. Yeah. So, I mean, yeah. I think what you also see from these cases is a real eagerness on the part of workers, and again, on the, most workers never encounter any opportunity to do this kind of work or to be part of these groups. They, mm -hmm. you know, they don't even know that they're out there. Yeah. Um, but the ones who do hear about them often respond very eagerly, and that shows you the potential too. It's not just that there are these like little experiments here and there of right. successfully doing it, but there's clearly a vast reservoir of interest that hasn't really been tapped. And so yeah. I guess I'd like to think that documenting this work maybe will help advance that a yeah. little further down. Yeah, it's interesting too because there are so many of these groups working in like in different neighborhoods in New York, in mm -hmm. different sort of um, different communities, different like ethnic communities, different um, boroughs, different you know, work sectors, but yeah, it almost, you, you feel like, oh, if we could, if everybody would just like sit down in a room and have this conversation together, <laughs> that it would really wow. change things, but I, I wonder how much of that is even possible. There's a little bit of that. Like yeah. there is this thing called the collaborative, which brings together a few of the groups and they share resources and like learn how to, you know, negotiate about healthcare together and stuff like that. Yeah. But, um, it's limited. Yeah, there is a sort of silo phenomenon where each group is doing their own thing and they don't talk to each other as much as one might think. Although, wow, some people do, individuals do move around between these groups, so that helps. There's yeah. a sort of circulation of leadership sometimes between from one yeah. to the next. That's interesting, yeah. But it's true, they don't talk to each other as much as one would like. Yeah. yeah. I guess they're busy. <laughs> they are really busy. Oh, goodness, yeah. yeah. Um, so a lot of them, a lot of these groups are drawing lessons from this, this sort of pre-NLRB organizing. Um, I really enjoyed the, the chapter on the Retail Action Project and, and talking about sort of craft identity and craft unionism uh -huh. in this context. Um, can you talk a little bit about that history and, and how the lessons that it has for now today's really dispersed workforce? Well, so the lesson, I think, is really this, which is that prior to the New Deal that, and the legislation that became law in the, in the mid-1930s, yeah. precarious work was the norm then, too. And so it's not surprising that the pre-New Deal forms of labor organizing have some resonance for today. Yeah. Basically, we've sort of rolled, we've reverted back to that situation um, with the unraveling of the um, New Deal-based labor relations system. So as we already discussed, that yeah. is really dysfunctional now. And so, and work um, is much less connected to st stable long-term jobs than it was between roughly 1935 and 1980 or so, okay. where that was really, it wasn't ever everybody, but it was the yeah. norm and it, it was a reasonable expectation that you could get a job like that if yeah. you worked at it. Nowadays, for the for especially for new labor market entrants, young people who are just becoming workers after finishing school or whatever, um, this is very, very unlikely. And so so the old forms of organizing, you could call it craft identity, but um, actually the, the person who's done the best research on this is historian Dorothy Sue Cobble, who mm -hmm. calls it occupational unionism. Yeah. Um, so many workers, even if they don't have um, a ton of you know formal training, have a strong identity with their occupation. And mm -hmm. retail is one example where you might move around from store to store, but you spend a lot of years in that industry. Um, and actually the building trades, which are still fairly highly unionized here right. in New York, have a similar problem, which is that their jobs are not stable either. They work on some building project and then it's done and then they move on to some other one. They may or may not have the same employer on the next job. 
Um, so in all those cases, people need, if, they're, if their job and the workplace is not stable, they need um, portable benefits, things like pensions and health care, if they're getting those from the employer, have to be, um, it can't be tied to the job because the job is not going to last very long. So there, it turns out there are these early 20th century and even late 19th century models of unionism that are exactly like that. And in the construction trades, they persist to this day. Yeah. Um, so in those cases, the union is the large organization in the industry, not the employer. And the union organizes pension funds, health care funds, training, right. um, things like that. And so there's a lot more interest in that model of unionism being revived than there was in the mid-20th century when it seemed like it was this relic of an earlier era where that earlier era is back. Yeah. It's also, that earlier era also was a time of high immigration, interestingly. So mm -hmm. there's just many commonalities between a century ago and today, yeah, especially places like New York, which always were immigrant gateways. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Like in some ways it's calling it like new labor or alt labor or something always feels to me like it's missing the fact that like we've done a lot of this before. Oh, that's true. And even the worker centers, I mean it's not exactly the same thing, but right. if you look back at the early 20th century at things like settlement houses and mm -hmm. groups like the Women's Trade Union League, they were also, um, you know, staffed by uh, elite women again mm -hmm. um, who were do-gooder types and wanted to help the poor and that meant helping workers with problems on the job often and sometimes supporting strikes and things like that so that also is very similar to what the worker centers of today are like I mean obviously with some differences but it's an echo of that earlier era too and those arose under the same conditions that we are seeing now so I think there's just a lot of parallels a lot to be learned from that history those days the women weren't paid to do the work they were really right. elite women who right. were supported by their husbands or fathers but they did yeah. contribute their time and effort to this and some of them became the famous New Deal people of you know later on people mm -hmm. like Frances Perkins and some of the women who became leaders in the CIO and so on started out in that world so a, there's a lot of history that we don't learn in schools imagine that so I, I totally wish we had time to just like go through every chapter of the book. Oh. Are there any of these in particular that any of these case studies that stand out to you as as containing lessons that are that are applicable for other places, but like that aren't being talked about as much? Hmm. Well, I think the really unique one that is, you know, really would be valuable all over the country, maybe elsewhere too, is the freelancers, mm -hmm. which is a little bit of an outlier in our array yeah. of organizations just because the people who are in it are more highly educated for the most part. Right. But really they face a lot of the same issues and one of the um, one of the strange things about what's come to be called alt-labor is yeah. its focus almost exclusively on low-wage workers when in fact precarity is a big issue for mm -hmm. college-educated workers as well. And as a former freelancer. <laughs> yeah. Well, that's right and it's huge and um, especially for the new generation entering the labor market this is almost the norm mm -hmm. and so I feel like that's an um, example of an organization. I mean it, has, it gets plenty of publicity but it's as far as I know the only thing like it is the freelancers union here in New York and it seems yeah. like that's something that could be spun off to um, and replicated elsewhere in the country because you know there's just a real need for it um, yeah. there's definitely a need for ugh, anyway I don't want to think about my industry <laughs> well, journalism but also yeah. so many things now I mean 
the entertainment industry, though there are entertainment industry unions, but right. more and more of the work is contract work and non-union arrangements mm -hmm. and also they and that's a lot of who's in the freelancers union as I understand it. Yeah. Um are, you know, professional film editors and people like that who do it all on a freelance basis. Right. Um so there's a big need for that and it seems to be spreading to more and more industries. So I I, yeah. I do think that um there's there's a lot that could be replicated. Yeah. I mean, I find that the freelancers stuff fascinating as a person who, you know, left a job at one point with the intention of becoming a freelancer. Like, it's, when we talk about precarity, we often only talk about it as though it's this unilaterally horrible thing, when in fact, like, there's some, there are some genuinely positive no. things that there, that people enjoy about. Well, that's right. And, you know, there's this book, The Precariat, by this guy, Guy Standing, and he mm -hmm. talks about the grinners and the groaners. Yeah. So the grinners are the people who smile through it, who, who yeah. you know, for whatever reason, are not um, living on the edge economically to right. the point, or maybe they're just very successful at their yeah. freelancing. For whatever reason, they have enough economic security that they really enjoy the freedom that yeah. this gives them, that they can turn down jobs, they can go on vacation when they want to, yeah. things like that. And then the groaners are the opposite, right? The people who are basically forced into this and have yeah. no alternative and are just trying to eke out a living. And for them, it's pretty miserable. Right. Um, that doesn't totally coincide with the education gradient. Yeah, no. correlated. Yeah. Um, the only other one I would lift up is that is very unusual. Yeah. Um, and it's the only one like it in our book, but there are a few other groups out there like this, is Min Kwan, this Korean workers' organization in uh -huh. Queens. We would have loved to have done more of that kind of thing. Like, Chinese staff should have been profiled mm -hmm. in there, but we weren't able to make it happen. But... So these are um, ethnically based um, right. worker centers, and you know, we in the LA book there's one. The Filipino worker center is mm -hmm. similar, but those are a different animal to some extent, and um, you know worthy of more discussion and investigation in their own right. I think. Yeah. Um, so we just have you know this one case, but yeah. um, that is re represented to some extent of a broader phenomenon mm -hmm. and one that one might expect more of in the future. Yeah, one of the other ones. Speaking of th that, um, that really struck me was the um, the street vendors organization. Oh, yeah. That's a great. That group was too. really. It was um, so interesting just to think about like the geography of the city that these peop that the street vendors occupy. Right. So That's that chapter is on mostly on Vamos Unidos, which is a most largely female and outer borough phenomenon. Mm -hmm. So people are more familiar with the street vendors in Manhattan and right. food trucks and so on. But those are relatively elite. They're precarious in their own way. Right. But these women are um, really that's the other extreme from the freelancers. They're really marginal economically right. and amazingly well organized despite that. So yeah. they're the immigrant networks are very important, I'm pretty yeah. sure. Yeah. And then the point that they made in there though that even some of the, the food vendors had chosen this as better than working a low-wage job somewhere, even though it was even more precarious. Yeah, it was more precarious, but if they have little kids, they can take the kids with them more, mm -hmm. and it, it's got flexible hours and all that kind of thing. Sure. No, that's right. So there is a um, potentially positive side to this, and a lot of, this is not in the book, but a lot of people are now talking about basic incomes policies mm -hmm. as a way of um, making uh, this kind of work more tolerable. If you, again, if you have some kind of basic economic security, right. then it has many advantages for workers as well as employers. Um, without that, which unfortunately is the case for the vast majority of the precariat, yeah. you know, it's another story. Yeah. But for people who have options um, or just the foundation, if they don't have to worry about having a home and eating yeah. and basic health care and stuff like that, then yeah. it's not so terrible. But, of course, that's not the case in the United States today. At least yeah. of all, in New York, where housing is so expensive and it's just this extraordinary um, yeah. 
what goes on that way. And there are tons of these precarious workers are actually homeless. Yeah. Which is not something we explore in the books to any extent, but, you know, that's the reality. Yeah. Yeah, Yeah, you bring up the basic income, which is, it's, yeah, it has certainly gained a lot of traction, at least in sort of, even sort of mainstream media outlets, right? Like the Washington Post and, and, you know, like other places have talked about this as a thing. And Um, in Switzerland, they're going to have a referendum shortly. Yes. Um, And so, but that brought me back to thinking about, I mean, sadly, like the difference between what we can talk about as a potential thing and the things that are likely to get through the U.S. Senate um, are very different. But it is true that a lot of these worker center groups are, have, like you said, more success with legislation than with, you know, unionizing the workforce, right? So we've seen like the Domestic Workers Bill of Rights and that again comes back around to the specific location, right? Like New York City, especially now that we don't have Bloomberg anymore. Um, well, it's actually the state. The, the, yeah. the Bill of Rights right. was a state law. Yeah, which was... But, um, so that was a huge victory, and yet, um, as the chapter title already suggests for right. that piece of the book, um, Prepare to Win, the organization that had this big victory realized after they won that they hadn't thought enough about what it would mean to implement the new Bill of Rights. So, in fact, the law, wonderful as it was, did not include any new resources for the Department of Labor, which is who's supposed to enforce the law. Right. Um, and enforcement is particularly challenging in the case of domestic workers, of course, since they're completely isolated. It's not like you go to a workplace where there's a thousand people and see what's going on, but right. one at a time. Um, so, and even spreading awareness of these rights is not so easy. Um, with the population of domestic workers, many of them not English speakers, etc. So, you know, that's a huge issue as well. So, symbolic victories are good. They they do help make people aware of the problems and so on and so forth, but actually changing the actual work, you know, pay and working conditions of precarious workers is a much heavier lift. And, yeah. you know, that's an example of a victory, but one that in some ways was bittersweet because of yeah. that. You yeah. Know. Yeah, and I'm also thinking of, like, the paid sick days campaign here that, like, the first paid sick days bill took three years and a fight with Christine Quinn and, and Mayor Bloomberg, and then they managed to update it in... Five minutes. Yeah, yeah. They, like, they've already <laughs> implemented the upgrade. I mean, yeah. really five minutes, which just shows you what you can do when you have a relatively progressive mayor and a progressive city council. Well, that's right. So our book was finished before de Blasio's election. and so. Right. And, but I feel like, in a way, it took us a long time. As I already described, it was a multi-year project. Right. But um, the timing, in a way, proved to be lucky because I think there is a lot more interest in these models now yeah. um, on the part of government anyway and um, a much more um, facilitating political context for future work like this than existed at the time we were working on this. I mean, this was not a priority, to put it mildly, of the Bloomberg administration (laughs) to address the needs of low-wage workers. And so, you know, maybe there's something to be learned that way. Interestingly, one of our chapter authors, Martha King, who wrote the chapter on the freelancers union, works for de Blasio. See? Look at that. You're you're influencing the administration. (laughs) Well, she is, anyway. Well, that's, (laughs) hey, that's great. So. Now, yeah, it is interesting to be, like, there are a lot of conversations now about, like, sort of the Bloomberg years, and this is... Yeah, certainly. A well, these are this story we tell is about the Bloomberg years, right. but um, that was a constraint rather than a facilitator right. of yeah. these efforts, and um, so maybe it'll be a little easier now. I mean, the political context definitely matters. Yeah, yeah, especially when you're sort of forced to focus on legislation. 
in that way, right? Yeah, really but you know, no city is an island, and all that. Well, I guess Manhattan is an island, but you know, <laughs> I mean, it's not, you yeah. can't do this alone. There, as we've seen with the minimum yeah. wage issue, yeah, you know, at least in New York State, you can't do it without support from the state. So, it's great to have a, a much more sympathetic administration in the mayor's office, but um, that we need more than that to really turn the situation around. Yeah. I mean, it's been building up for many decades now too, so it's not going to happen overnight. And I think that's the other thing is that. You know, these are small steps, the things that we document in here, but mm -hmm. it's it's not, it's a big ship to turn around in any case, so um, you wouldn't expect it to change overnight, uh, even yeah. under the best of circumstances. Yeah, um, and sort of finally, to wrap up, um, of course you said the book was done long before the, the fast food movement and, and our not Walmart, before, but, but, before, but a, yeah. a bit before, yeah. Yeah. Th that sort of took these tactics to at least if not another level, at least a more um, visible place, certainly. Yeah, well, I see that as, in a way, the culmination of, we, we end the book by, or the introduction, I guess, ends by saying, you know, that this growing synergy between traditional unions and the alt-labor worker center type organizations mm -hmm. and community organizations, um, you know, that we hope it will be a fruitful marriage and multiply and all that. Yeah. That's kind of a tired metaphor, but... In a way, that has begun to happen since we finished the work on the on this project. That is, I think both the fast food and the, our Walmart are examples of large unions with deep pockets taking a page from the worker center playbook and seeing where they, you know, how far they can go with it. So they're not; these are not conventional union campaigns by any stretch of the imagination, and they're employing a lot of the tactics. You know, everything from uh, creating sort of public dramas in the streets to get public and media attention to the struggles of the workers, um, not worrying too much about winning unionization immediately, but focusing on the issues that people are facing every mm -hmm. day and so on, which is not something unions have done for many, many years in, in this country, but they're beginning to learn from these experiments. And so I think that's the most hopeful thing that we've seen, not just in New York, but around the country. And it really has caught on. Yeah. Um, I think, in fact, even the push in many regions to increase the minimum wage, which we're s it's not going to mm -hmm. happen at the federal level probably anytime yeah. soon, but <laughs> but lots of states and even cities are now exploring that, and that comes directly off of the fast food stuff. So I, I do feel like there's some momentum now for these kinds of efforts, um, more than at the time we were working on the research. Yeah. yeah. And that was Ruth Milkman, professor of sociology at the City University of New York Graduate Center. And now it's time for ARG, I Wish I'd Written That. It is our weekly roundup of pieces that we wish we had written this week but did not, so we will refer you to them with our full-throated recommendation. My piece this week is Jamel Bowie's Down and Out, and it is subtitled The Single Fact That Powerfully Explains Why Black Americans Have Such a Hard Time Climbing the Economic Ladder. Well, it's not really a single fact. It's actually much more complicated than that uh, BuzzFeed-style subtitle, notwithstanding. Um, in this piece, Bowie explores issues of black social mobility and community solidarity, which are two sort of twin concepts that often orbit each other in the liberal commentary, but don't really intersect very much. And it's 
kind of unfortunate that we don't think about those two things and their relationship to each other. Um, he posits that one of the reasons it is so hard to, quote, break out of poverty in many communities of color is that for many, this means essentially breaking with their community. And he starts with the anecdote of Richard Sherman of the Seattle Seahawks writing in defense of his friend Deshaun Jackson, recently uh, dropped from the Philadelphia Eagles amid reports of his past so-called gang ties. Um, basically, he was being stigmatized for palling around in his youth with, you know, some teenagers who maybe got involved in some unsavory things. What he's saying here is that throughout um, kids' life cycle, if they're growing up in a poor black neighborhood, they're going to encounter these things. They're going to encounter hard realities. And the fact that our society is so incredibly unaccommodating and unforgiving and sort of unimaginative in the way they can think about the diverse ways in which people live their lives, um, that makes it really difficult for people to advance along the normally acceptable lines of economic advancement, which is, you know, going to college, getting a good job, you know, moving into a nice neighborhood or a nice suburb with good schools and, you know, respectable property tax rates. Respectable and, being yeah, the operative word. Right. Respectable. And so one of the big barriers to advancing economically in that way is the fact that many people are forced to, you know, trade family, community, neighborhood friendship for that trophy of advancing into the so-called middle class. It's unfair, it's racist, it's deeply inequitable that uh, we ask certain members of society to make those types of sacrifices in order to play to what, you know, a white supremacist privileged social structure um, recognizes as the good kind of citizen. And Bowie actually cites sociological uh, research of Patrick Sharkey um, in his book Stuck in Place talking about institutional segregation and entrenched poverty in communities of color and how liberalism, the product of liberalism that grew out of the war on poverty back in the 60s and later the 1970s kind of fell apart, that project failed because it really failed to understand how communities need cohesion or to produce the kinds of economic advancement within themselves that will really allow people as a people to advance. Um, Unfortunately, and we see this debate playing out now, whether it's pro sports or whether it's charter schools, often what it means to, you know, give your kid a good educational future, what it means to, you know, guarantee that you're going to have a steady income later in life is that you have to cut off or negate or hide certain parts of your identity and your background. And that speaks to these forms of institutionalized racism that continue to haunt society. And until we get over that, until we confront that, until we have a language to even understand how that corrodes communities from within, we can never really understand the the problem of so-called black social mobility. We won't understand what intergenerational poverty really is until we recognize that people don't just leave generations behind the way they shed a, a, you know, a class identity, right? Uh, there are all sorts of human complexities that go into that. And when we condemn you know, professional sports stars for palling around with the wrong kind of people when they're young, what we're essentially doing is criminalizing their background in a way that no one deserves. That Richard Sherman piece, by the way, is amazing. And we will also link to that on the Descent website because it's really a marvelous condemnation of what is expected of young black athletes as opposed to, for instance, the white men who coach them or own their teams. 
on see the last belabored episode on see the last belabored episode on all of that um see it's almost like everything we talk about is related it's all connected connected. from sports to porn um we're talking about all sorts of fun things on this week's belabored totally connected totally connected um, the piece I wish I'd written this week is in our own host publication, Descent Magazine, the spring issue, which has a wonderful special section on tech, edited by our Sarah Leonard and Kate Lossie. Melissa Jira Grant, who was a recent guest on Belabored, has a piece called For the Love of Kink. And what she does here is she takes on the, quote, labor of love issue from the point of view of labor in porn. We are hearing a lot lately that technology quote, big scare quotes around technology there, is displacing jobs that wages for, for example, writers on the internet have dropped dramatically because in part people are willing to do that work for much less money or even for free. And the internet gives the boss access to those willing and unpaid laborers. What happens when a porn site, kink.com in this case, puts this ideology into action? Kink.com has cut wages for its paid performers at the same time as it began hosting free, quote, parties in its San Francisco headquarters. Guests can come in and have a grand old time in a huge, beautiful space, so long as they sign a form saying that they understand that their sexual activities will be broadcast on the web to Kink's paying customers. In other words, they end up doing the work of porn performers for free. It's not quite prestige that um, Entertainment Weekly, among other publications, has recently offered to writers who will not receive anything they can actually pay rent with. But it is a variation on this same do-what-you-love ideology that leads people to work for free all over the place, whether that be, for instance, college sports. See how I brought all that around? Full circle. Um, Full circle. Or writing on the internet, as Michelle and I do for a living. Um, Or try to. Or try to. uh, Or many, many other forms of things that used to be work. Things that still are work for some people. Um, added to the top of that in this particular case of kink.com or other unpaid online porn, um, the value of what the customers, the customers being the people who are paying to watch the web stream, not the people performing, the people performing are the product in this case, um, the customers are paying for the idea that they're watching something genuine, not something performed. They are paying for the performance of amateurism, in fact, but, you know, like this idea, TV. right, the, the very idea that you're doing it because you love it is actually what's being commodified in this case. Um, kink is selling the emotional labor of its unpaid participants. This all, in addition to all of many of my favorite topics, comes back down to a very important point, which is highlighted in many of the pieces in this, this current um, tech section. When we say that technology is displacing workers or driving down wages, we should remember that technology doesn't act on its own. Um, sure, the um, easy access to streaming video has given Kink the ability to broadcast to people all over the world for a fee, but that's not what made it cut the wages for its paid workers as other people step in to do the work for free. That's just good old-fashioned greed and exploitation. And those are constant themes here on Belabored. So tune in next week for more exploitation and, uh, you know, said commentary. (laughs) And said commentary on whatever. Next week, in fact, will be our one-year anniversary podcast. So we will try to have something exciting and special for you. 
As always, you can tweet at us at hashtag belabored. Send us your suggestions. At um, You can email us at belabored at descentmagazine.org. Ask us questions. Send us story <laughs> suggestions. Share your commentary. And share your emotional labor with us. <laughs> we'll be back next week. This life is hard. So hard, I must go. You've been listening to Descent Magazine's Belabored Podcast. For the entire archive of past episodes, visit descentmagazine.org. Until next week, join us online using hashtag belabored.